0: Think about a little girl about eleven years ago, um, uh, granddaughter of close friends of ours from church where, where we pastored at the time, and I was in the nursery with with Ava and and uh, just a beautiful, precious child. And uh, one day I got a call from her grandmother, Pat, just screaming, and I, I couldn't tell what was going on, but I knew it was an emergency. There'd been an accident. I I, I Heard sirens, I followed them and found her and, and uh, we, we, we flew to the hospital 100 miles an hour and we prayed and we prayed and we believed and we said the right things and we did the right things and we had faith and, and that little child died and after she died we prayed that she would rise and she didn't and we believed that she could. We knew that God would. And I, I had a, a close uh, mentor named Jack who all through college had mentored me. And he always told a story. He, he, he really taught me just to trust God for anything. And, and uh, he always told a story about his dog getting kicked and, and, and dying. And he prayed for his dog and his dog rose again. And, and uh, you can raise Jack's do- dog. Come on. But you can't do this. You won't do this. Um, I've seen God, and you 've seen God do so many amazing things, right? We 've seen God do amazing things, but then there's times that, <laughs> that we ask and we're, we want Him to do this thing, and it 's so confusing that He doesn't, when he doesn't. Um, sometimes, even though we get the formula right and we have the faith right, and, and we think, "Well, I did, it, I did it the right way, I did the right things. How come? it's so confusing. Uh, sometimes not even in, the, in that scenario or that type of situation, but sometimes God can be confusing in that, you know, I can be so sure that I'm right about this or about that. And, and then maybe later I realize, wait a minute, I wasn't right about that. Does this ever happen? <laughs> Pray that this happens to you. If it doesn't happen, we got a problem, okay? But, but wow, I wasn't right about that. I, I thought that I was on God's side. Then it come to find out, wait a minute, that's not where God was at all. It can be confusing In Luke 9, Jesus' disciples are going to find themselves confused. And all the way through the Gospels, we see them confused about just the nature of what it means to be a disciple. They're confused about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a friend of Jesus, what it means to be in his inner circle. Um, Does it mean power? And does it mean privilege? And does it mean reputation? Does it mean a life of ease and everything going our way? And, and they really struggled with this. They're confused about this over and over. And 2,000 years into this thing, we still are really confused about this. What does it mean? Does it mean ease? Does it mean power, privilege? What does it mean to be great? This is something we have to learn over and over and over again. We find ourselves exasperated or perplexed or confused. In in, in Luke 9, verse 7, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, everything Jesus is doing, and he was perplexed. You can underline or circle or highlight that word perplexed. You just remember, that word perplexed means confused. Um, Puzzled. Herod's hearing about the things that Jesus is doing, and he is confused. He's perplexed. He's troubled. He's puzzled. And, And he says... Uh, It it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, I beheaded John. Who's this guy? Who's this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see Jesus. So Herod is perplexed, disturbed, puzzled, confused. But he's not the only one. The Pharisees are, the the elites are, but even Jesus' own disciples are, in, in this passage, are, are so confused and perplexed and puzzled and troubled by him and just by his refusal to do things the way that they think that he should. And I find myself continuing to be perplexed, confused, frustrated with the way that he does this and doesn't do that. The way he does things in a way that, 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 that I wouldn't. Um, and so as, as we're walking through this season of Lent, Lent is about returning to God. Lent is this period, 40-day period, leading up to Easter, and it's a, and it's, it's a season uh, about uh, repenting, returning to the Lord, and it's about self-denial. And Jesus is going to speak to self-denial in this, in this, so that's why some people fast during Lent. We're denying our, ourselves, we're denying our... But, but sometimes as Christians, we can think that, that self-denial is just kind of an end in itself. We deny ourselves just because... But what I'd like for us to see as we walk through this passage today is that in denying myself, I make space for one who's greater than me. In denying myself and dying to self, I make space for somebody who is greater than me. So in these first six verses of Luke Luke 9, Luke 9 verse 1, Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. I just want us to to stop there for a second. What do we see Jesus do here? He calls and he gathers his disciples together. And then he says, hey guys, I want us all to stay in this bubble together from now on. No. He calls them together, and then he empowers them, gives them authority, and then he sends them out. That is still Jesus' pattern today. And so if I've been in a Bible study for the past 40 years and I hadn't served anybody yet, I am missing it somewhere. Something is getting lost in translation. So Jesus gathers us together. He empowers, equips, gives us authority, and then he sends us out. So we've gathered. Hopefully you're going to receive some equipping, some authority. We all are from him. And then we're going to go out and and, and we're going to go live our our short-term mission trip in this world until we gather again okay he gathers us he empowers us and then he sends us out and then and then we read that about Herod being perplexed by Jesus and then and then we see in, in verse 10 this amazing example of Jesus provision okay and and we're we're not going to spend a lot of time here looking at Jesus feeding the 5000 but, but just want to want to want to read this and we can see as, as if we can just imagine being here we can see why the disciples would kind of have certain ideas about what kind of a messiah Jesus is going to be Luke 9:10 on their return the apostles told him, all they had done. So the apostles, he sent them out. They've done amazing things. They've healed. They've raised the dead. And all this is a sign. These are signs they're doing to point to the reality that Jesus has brought God's kingdom near. And they're preaching the good news that Jesus is king. They're telling Jesus everything they've done. And we can just imagine how excited they are. Just like in, in a couple days, this Belize team is going to be coming back. And they're going to tell us everything that happened. And they're going to be so pumped. And, 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 and the disciples are so pumped as they're just, as they're just downloading everything that they've done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him. Even though they withdrew, they found him. He welcomed them, spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said, Send the crowd away. Now notice this. The, 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 the 12 come to Jesus, the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, send the crowd away. And this is a command. This is in the verb form. This is an imperative. This is a command. They've been on a short-term mission trip, and now they're bossing Jesus around, okay? <laughs> does this sound like anybody you know? Like, they've got a little bit of experience now. They've had, they've had like a week out on, the, uh, you know, uh, healing the sick and preaching the message, and now they're telling Jesus, they're advising him, they're commanding him, hey, you need to do this. Send these people away. And look at what Jesus does. Um, they say, we're, send the crowd away, go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. We're here in a desolate place. But Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They said, we don't have any more than five loaves and two fish. We learned from Mark's gospel. They got that from a little boy who just happened to share it from the crowd. Uh, unless we were going to buy food for all these people, these are, these are your typical Christians, okay? They're saying... This isn't in the budget, okay? I, I, I'm sure God wants to do something, but how are we going to pay for this, okay? Uh, we don't have the budget for this. We've got to run this through uh, the chain of command. We don't have... We, you surely you don't want us to go spend money on this. And uh, they're, they're saying, for there's about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So there's men plus probably some women and children. And so they sit down in groups of probably about 50 men each, plus their families, so that each of these disciples can serve a group of people. Jesus multiplies himself... And then, he multipl- and, and then He multiplies the bread and the fish. They, have, they, they sit down, taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven, said, it, said a blessing over them. Then He broke the loaves, gave them to their disciples and sat before the crowd. They all ate were satisfied. What was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets full of broken pieces. So much going on here. But at the end of the day, we see that God provides for our needs. This is a miraculous provision uh, that Jesus he feeds This this crowd of thousands of people and he takes a little and and when we give Jesus just a little bit that we have, he breaks it, he blesses it, and he makes something out of it. So good, so much good truth there. And so if we need provision today, there's, there's, there's something we can grab hold of there. But we can imagine, I mean, imagine you were a part of that. You were a part of seeing like... A sack lunch get turned into food for thousands of people and you were part of that you, you imagine you'd kind of walk out of that kind of with your chest kind of bowed out kind of like yeah i was i was there i was there. Hey, remember when that remember when we you know we fed all those people um and and so and so we we would imagine that seeing this like the disciples are thinking yes like we have hitched our wagons to a guy that can just do this and feed the world, like, we have won the lottery. Like, gee, we're never going to have to work a day in our lives. I mean, this is great. We've got the easy street now. There's not going to be any suffering. There's not going to be any lack. This is abundant life. Now, it happened, verse 18, that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them. Now, now hold on. Verse 18, he's praying alone, and the disciples were with him. What does that mean? So they're together, but Jesus is the only one praying. Can you imagine what the disciples are doing? They're scheming. That's what they're doing. They're planning. They're making big plans, and they're getting it all figured out. And Jesus is praying. And he turns and says to them, who do the crowds say that I am? Because they're talking about the crowds. You know they're talking, man, you see all those thousands of people, and we left and we fed them, they're saying, Jesus, Jesus. And it was so great. And they answer, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say you're one of the old prophets. See, it's the same conversation that Herod had just had. They're just as confused as Herod is. We stay as confused as Herod was. Then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And now this is central, this is the central chapter in Luke. This is where everything turns toward the cross. And this is the central question of the gospel. of Luke, this is the central question of their existence. This is the central question of your life and mine. He says, who do you say? I'm not asking what your mama said, what your grandma said. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, the Christ of God. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. Right answer. And that means Peter's got it figured out, right? No. We're going to find in this chapter, as this chapter uh, it gets gets laid out, that even though Peter knows the right answer, he doesn't really know what Jesus is about. And it's possible for us to be informed. It's possible for us to answer the multiple choice quiz correctly, but still un- misunderstand the fundamental mission and person of Jesus. He, he He says... You're the Christ to God, and then Jesus says, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. Whoa, 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 whoa! I mean, they don't have a category for the messiahs. Don't get rejected and crucified. They can't hear the word of resurrection because they can't fathom that he would be killed. I mean, you don't get killed if you're going around feeding thousands of people and healing the sick and raising the dead. That's not what happens. This is not computing with them. They are not getting it. They are confused and perplexed. Jesus is telling them, he's telling them, "I'm, I'm the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. By my stripes you're going to be healed. But they can't get it because they're so married to their idea of who Jesus is, they can't see who Jesus is. Does this ring a bell for any of us? I'm so married to who I think he is, I can't see who, he's, who he is. And then in verse 23, he says to them, All, if anyone would... just 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 hear this. Let these words soak in... He says... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And what happens next is Peter, James, and John are going to go with Jesus and they're going to see a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to be transfigured, metamorphosized in front of them and his glory is going to shine. And they're going to see Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. And they're talking about his departure or in. in in Greek, the, his exodus, and this is a picture that he's going to do what the Old Testament exodus from, from Egypt only pointed toward. He's going to lead us to, from, from, to freedom from slavery to our bondage to sin. And Between these incredible events, feeding the 5,000, the transfiguration of Jesus, in between these incredible things, glorious things, Jesus is telling them, you got to deny yourself. Take up your cross every day. If you want to follow me, but you know, cross, when they hear that, I mean, when, when Peter or James or John or one of the disciples saw a man take up his cross, that was a one way trip. That was a one way trip. That man didn't come back when a man took a cross and and, and was led out of the city. He never was seen again. He died. Jesus is, is telling them to take and take up their, this instrument of torture, this instrument of the death penalty. It's like Him saying to us, every day, strap yourself into that electric chair. That, that doesn't sound pretty. That doesn't sound comfortable. That doesn't sound like a life of ease. It sounds like there's a certain amount of suffering in the bag here. Deny yourself. Follow me. Whoever will save his life will lose it. Talk about some perplexing words. So we're saying the old man is gone. He doesn't live here anymore. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross. How often? Every single day. And he says, follow me. I love these words. These words are very helpful from John Piper. He says, when Jesus said that the way to follow him was to take up our cross, he meant at least this. Be willing, without murmuring or God criticism or cowardice, be willing to be opposed to be shamed, to suffer, and to die, all for your allegiance to Him. Or to go to the heart of the matter, to take up your cross meant to treasure Jesus more than we treasure human approval. Did we hear that? Treasure Jesus more than we treasure human approval, honor, comfort, and life. Taking up our cross means Jesus has become more precious to us than approval, honor, comfort, and And life To take up my cross means that Jesus is treasured in my heart more than approval, more than honor, more than comfort, more than life. And so again, we're here in the season of Lent where it's about self-denial and repentance. And and so maybe some of us are fasting from sodas or desserts for Lent. If you're not, you know, you can start that. Um, We're not doing that. We don't fast and deny ourselves during Lent to earn or merit God's approval. But as a way to respond to that. Um, but sometimes we can think about self-denial in pretty shallow terms. And uh, I remember last, or a couple years ago, we asked the kids, hey, what do you want to fast from Lent? And, and I think it was Alma said, uh, I'm, I'm going to fast from corn. You know, like, well, you don't even eat that to begin with. You know, that's not... Um, but a uh, nice try, you know. But sometimes we think about self-denial... Um, like that Jesus just wants us to deny ourselves just for the sake of denying ourselves, just for the sake of making life more difficult, um, but when he 's talking about deny ourselves here he 's not saying he 's not saying deny yourselves just for the, for the sake of doing it he 's calling us to live as the new person that He has made us to be he 's calling us to live with him as the center of our lives he 's calling us to treasure him above everything else. And that's what abundant life is. Abundant life is treasuring Jesus above all else. Not just um, suffer to suffer, but I treasure Him. And I found the treasure in the field. And nothing compares to Him. There's no earthly thing that compares to Him. So when he's talking about dying to ourselves and denying ourselves, I can think of at least four ways that I think are faithful to the text here that that can be worked out. One, I have to, desi- I have to die to my desire to be God. I have this deep-rooted worship problem. I have this deep-rooted heart problem. And that is that I want to be the king of the universe. I mean, and, and some, some may think, yeah, I'm I'm really glad Matt has recognized that about himself. Maybe that'll change. Does anybody else struggle with this desire to be, I mean, it's like, I don't want, I don't want much. I just want to be the king of the universe, you know? Uh, I would love for the world to revolve around me. I think you probably would too. That's a heart issue. That's a worship issue. Every day I've got to die to my desire to be God. I am not God. I've got to die to my determination to define God in my own image. And that's what the disciples are struggling with here. Wait a minute, Messiahs? Messiahs don't die? What are you talking about? I've got to die to my determination to define God in my own image. The disciples have their own ideas about what Messiahs do and don't do. When Jesus is perplexing them, he's confusing them. I have my own ideas. And I've got to die to that every single day. God, what does your word say that you are? Who does your word say that you are? Who are you? I've got to die to my determination to define God in my own image. I've got to die to my depraved tendency to treasure sin over Jesus. As as a sinful, twisted person, I'm prone to treasure my sin more than I treasure Jesus. And what I would love would be for if you would just come alongside me and make as many excuses about my sin as I make about my sin. Aren't we quick with the excuses when it comes to our own sin? Justific- well, I'm just, I just gossip because, you know, I really wanted to say that about that person and, you know, they really did. I just... We're quick with the justifications of our sin and we're tempted to want to nurture our sin. But the Scripture in Romans 8, for example, we've been talking about it the past couple Sunday nights, In Romans 8, uh, Paul tells us to, by the Spirit of God, to put to death sin in our lives. Put it to death. John Owen lived in the 1600s, and he said these very, very true words. He said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. I'm not talking about everybody else's sin. I'm talking about my pet sin, my little chia pet sin that I'm kind of taking care of and nurturing and guarding. My arrogance or my gossip or my pride or, or, or my gluttony or my greed, whatever it is, I've got to die. That has to die. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you every day. Every day you and I hear the message from this world. Just do what you want to do, man. Who's it going to hurt? I mean, obey your thirst, right? Whatever that thirst is, just obey it. Live driven by your desires. Here's Jesus talking about self-denial. Kill your sin or sin will be killing you. I've got to die to my depraved tendency to treasure sin over Jesus. And, and I've got to die to the deception that Jesus promises an easy life. I've got to die to the deception that just because I'm following Jesus, somehow my life is going to be easy. Um... I believe it was Karl Marx that said that religion is an opiate for the masses um, that that religion is something we turn to just to deaden our senses and and the reality is a lot of us do want Christianity to do that. A lot of us come to church because we want something just to, we want to take a hit off of something just that's going to make life feel better for a minute. Um, Brene Brown said that. She went back to church in order to find comfort. She said, I went to church hoping to find an epidural to take away my pain. And she says, church was not an epidural. It was a midwife. It just stood next to me and said, push. It's supposed to hurt a bit. Man, what a picture of what it means to be the body of Christ. Our job isn't to promise visions of of unicorns and rainbows to everybody our job isn't to take away everybody's pain our job is to walk next to each other and say keep pushing there's something glorious on the other side of this keep pushing there's life on the other side of this death keep pushing it's supposed to hurt a little bit in denying myself i make space for one who's greater than me jesus doesn't call me to deny myself just because he's mean in denying myself, when I deny Matt, that old Matt, when I deny him from being the king of my castle, I step aside and I make room for one who is greater than me, to do in me what only he can do in me. Self-denial is not just, doing, uh, not, just not doing what I want. Well, I'd like to go to the movies, but Jesus. That's not what self-denial is about. Self-denial is about living as this new creation that Jesus calls me, that Jesus says I am, even when I'm tempted to live like the old me used to be. And it's fueled by treasuring Jesus. Self-denial is fueled by treasuring Jesus above all else. So sometimes dying to self means I refuse vengeance when I really want to get even. Maybe I really want to get even with Ryan. And... Uh, and, and I'm just, I just, I just, you're like the hardest person to be mad at too, by the way. Like you're just sitting there smiling. I'm like, oh man, I can't be mad at it. But like, maybe I just really want vengeance on Ryan. And self-denial is choosing forgiveness. Even when I want to get even. Sometimes dying to self means I forgive even when I'd really like to rub this thing in. Sometimes dying to self means I'm taking out the trash instead of being the center of attention. Sometimes it means I'm fasting rather than gorging. Sometimes it means I compliment somebody I don't like behind their back. Hang with that one for a second. Maybe I compliment somebody I don't like behind their back. Hey, man, did you hear about, you know, did you hear about uh, Samantha? I do like you, Samantha, sorry. Did you hear about Samantha? Man, I saw her serving the other night like crazy. What if we did that kind of gossip? What if we were complimenting and blessing each other behind their back. That's dying of self. Maybe if I was praying rather than worrying, maybe I'm feeling the sting of being the shame of an outsider because I don't join in an office gossip or making fun of a kid at school, and so I taste the sting of shame and being outcast. Maybe sacrificing time to disciple somebody or to pour into somebody that cannot pay me back. These are examples of dying itself, maybe letting somebody think ill of me rather than going and setting them straight and defending myself and pleading my case. Each of these cases, and there's a billion others where we choose to treasure Jesus. It's not just, well, I'm a Christian, I can't do that. It's, I'm going to treasure Jesus more than my reputation. I'm going to treasure Jesus more than I treasure my sin. I'm going to treasure Jesus more than I treasure my comfort, my honor, my life, my reputation. And so all this has happened. And then Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And then we get to verse forty. Three, all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Is there anything that you've had to learn over and over and over again? You find yourself ever having to learn the same thing? Me too. Over and over and over again. He says, let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. Not sure if the devil or God was concealing it from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And so an argument naturally arose among them about who is the greatest. Can you imagine? Yeah. So Jesus keeps telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to a cross. It's about suffering. It's about self-denial. And so an argument breaks out. Hey, we're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to sit on our throne. Who's going to have the best seat? These guys are really getting it, right? Or maybe they're arguing about Hey, well, I serve better than you, so I'm the greatest. No, I serve better, so I'm the greatest. We have all kinds of ways of missing the point. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus, verse 47, Knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Whoever is least is the one who is great. This is something the disciples and we disciples have to learn over and over and over again. Jesus brings a child to their midst, somebody that has no status, no power, no authority, is that this is what it means to be great. True greatness isn't, I'm willing to do a stint in the nursery once a year and kind of take a selfie. and That's not true greatness. True greatness isn't, yeah, I'm willing to serve every now and then. True greatness is I'm willing to live as a servant day in, day out. I'm willing to do what I do with the attitude of a servant every single day. I don't think any of us are nailing this, but some in this room are coming really close. Martin Luther King Jr. said everyone can be great. One of his best messages, everybody, this is Becky's favorite message of Martin Luther King. Everybody can be great. Because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Anybody can be great. Because anybody can serve. And if we got this, man, we'd be tripping over each other to pick up the trash. We'd be tripping over each other to volunteer with the least of these right here in our church. The chapter closes... After all of this, Peter comes up to Jesus, and he's so proud. Kind of like when your your child comes and gets you, and you're, oh, come look at this. And and you know it's going to be, I mean, you know it's going to be bad, just by the look on their face. And there's paint all over them, and you go, and they've painted something or drawn something all over the wall. And they're like, hey, aren't you proud of this? And you're like, not really. Peter says, hey, Jesus, uh, guess what? He says, I saw a guy casting out demons in your name, and I totally shut him down because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus is like, oh, well, if he's not against us, he's for us. And then John, a village wouldn't wouldn't welcome him, and John says, hey, because, hey, these are the days of Elijah, right? What did Elijah do? He called down fire from heaven, so John says, hey. And he's got scriptural merit for this, okay? He could draw this. It says in, in 2 Kings this, he says, Hey, these guys didn't like us. They didn't accept us. You want me to call down fire from heaven? I mean, can you just hear the arrogance in John? And this is the, this is the, the disciple of love, right? He says, he says, you want me to call down fire from heaven? And he's so proud of himself. He's missing it. We miss it. And so if you find yourself getting confused about what it means to be a disciple, we're in good company because we get confused we miss the point. And the reason we deny ourselves, the reason we die every single day is because we're making room for one who is greater than us. God gives you His Spirit to guide you, to help you, to empower you, empower you to serve, empower you to to deny yourself, empower you to keep the main thing the main thing because we are prone to miss it. And if we would all me included, just hold on to that humility that says, you know what, I'm kind of good at missing the point. If we hold on to that, that little bit of humility might help us in a lot of situations we're, we're in. So how might God call you, call me, call us to deny ourselves, to die to self?